Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Math. Our guest today is Paul Nahan, the author of Hot Molecules, Cold Electrons. This is a book that is meant for someone who is comfortable with calculus, but for those readers who are, it is a treat. It is a thorough study of the history and mathematics of the heat equation, which is not only important as an analysis of heat, its analysis marked the beginning of Fourier series. It came as a surprise to me that the heat equation was also instrumental in analyzing the problem of laying the transatlantic cable that was one of the great engineering feats of the 19th century. Although it isn't necessary to work through the math to appreciate this book, I think that students studying this material would not only find Paul's treatments easy to follow, but would benefit greatly by learning some of the history that surrounds the development of the analysis and applications of the heat equation. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Jim. Paul, what motivated you to write this book? Well, several several years ago, uh, I wrote a book that was specifically aimed at electrical engineers called uh, Transients for Electrical Engineers. And it was a pretty technical book. I assume people had an electrical engineering background. But Fourier's work figured very heavily in that book. And it occurred to me that all by itself, that was worth a book on its own. And I decided I'd, I'd tried my hand at that. And uh, it would be a great project. And it turned out it was. And this is the result? That's right. Okay, because when you said I was writing a book on Fourier series, I thought you might have written another book just on Fourier series. But Fourier series, of course, plays an instrumental part in the heat equation. Yeah. No, actually, the, the book, Transients for Electrical Engineers, uh, uses a more modern technique, uh, operational calculus, the Laplace transform. But as a throwaway line in that book, I mentioned that that's not how Fourier did it, and that's not how William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, did it. Uh, they used what you might call traditional time-domain mathematics. And uh, I didn't really do that in, in the transients for electrical engineering, for electrical engineers book, because I wanted to take the modern transform approach. What I decided to do in this book, uh, Hot Molecules, Cold Electrons, was to be more historically accurate and do it the way uh, Fourier and, and Thompson would have done it. And I think I have a line in the book there that says that, uh, in my mind, I was trying to write a book the way either one of those two men would have written the book themselves, using their mathematics. Um, speaking of mathematics, how much mathematics do you feel is required in order to be able to appreciate your book? Can it be read without being comfortable with the mathematics? Well, I've, I've thought a little bit about that. Uh, ideally, I was uh, thinking that a, a person with a strong uh, high school AP calculus background or even a freshman calculus background 
would have the ideal background for the book. And with that in mind, let's say the, uh, to make it mathematical, the experience level would be a 10 if I could do that. But uh, without the math, it would be not quite the same. It might be a five, let's say. But as a, uh, a benefit, I think that even a reader at that level would easily appreciate how important mathematics is to understand what Fourier did and William Thompson later uh, for his cable analysis, and that that might make a difference in encouraging readers to study some more math. They could see the benefit they gained it, that, that they would achieve by doing that. You know, that's a very interesting point, and I hadn't really considered that, because when I was looking at the book, I, was, uh, I thought you did the historical treatments exceptionally well. And somebody who wasn't comfortable with the math could read it just for the historical treatments, because you get a good picture, not only of who these people are, but the eras in which they lived and what it was that they did. But I didn't realize that, yeah, probably what could happen is somebody who's gone through maybe high school math without going into calculus and um, wants to get back into the subject. And I know that there are a lot of people who are like that. I, uh, uh, I remember I, when I was uh, a graduate advisor at Cal State Long Beach, somebody came back after having been out of school for 30 or 40 years, was retired and started afresh with calculus. And I think there are people like that who would appreciate it. Well, that's an interesting point, and and maybe I'm a little more harsh on myself than I ought to be. I actually enjoyed the historical research at least as much as the math. Of course, I like the math, too. I wouldn't have written a book like that if I didn't. But the historical part uh, really fascinated me a lot. Uh, I had done a little bit like that earlier uh, some years ago with a book I did, uh, a biography of Oliver Heaviside who uh, played a role in, in cable, uh, transatlantic cable analyses too. And I love doing that book. So maybe maybe this is my second birth at enjoying the historical part. I, I did get a kick out of that. I like the quote that the math in your book isn't there to make life difficult. It's there because that's the way the world is made. One of the primary ways that the universe speaks to us is in partial differential equations. Among the best known of these are Maxwell's laws of electrodynamics, Einstein's theory of relativity, and of course the wave equation of quantum mechanics. But didn't partial differential equations start to show up in the 18th century? Yes, that's right. Well, with a study of the wave equation, which is a uh, partial differential equation, it looks a little bit like the heat equation. It's a, it's a second order partial differential equation. And in fact, I talk a little bit about that later in in the book. Uh, But with the wave equation, uh, in the 18th century, people were studying wave propagation. Uh, People like Euler, Bernoulli, D'Alembert, people like that. A hundred years or more before, uh, before Fourier did his work. You know, Newton and Maxwell are two of the great names in physics. How did Newton and Maxwell unify mathematics and physics? Well, with Isaac Newton, uh, of course, he took gravity, which everybody was familiar with. If you fell off the second floor of a building, you fell. Everybody knew that's what gravity did. 
and he extended it, <clears throat> excuse me, he extended that <clears throat> to the entire universe, uh, the inverse square law of gravity, and combined that with his invention <clears throat> of the calculus. Although it is worth mentioning that when he wrote the Principia, uh, all of his all of his great mathematical developments uh, were such that he printed them, he wrote them up in terms of geometry, which makes the Principia a little hard to read today for a modern reader. He did that because calculus was so new that he was not uh, confident that many of his readers would understand what he was getting at. So if you read it, read it what he did you'll see the proofs are geometric, and they're enormously clever uh, to the point where sometimes they're pretty hard to follow. Uh, for Maxwell, of course, what he did was to combine electricity and magnetism, which had, up to his uh, time were considered to be two separate subjects. And he was mathematically able to link them together and into what he called the mutual embrace that electricity and magnetism come together. You can't have one without the other. Why is Jean-Baptiste Fourier's approach to the study of heat also a unification of math and physics? Well, the physics in Fourier's uh, development of uh, Fourier series uses conservation of energy to derive the heat equation. And I take the reader through that in the early part of the book to see exactly how that works with the, uh, the end result coming out to be uh, mathematical expressions, which are infinite sums of harmonically related trigonometric functions. So it's almost like you can't have one without the other. Uh, same as with Newton, with geometry, calculus, and physics. Uh, Fourier showed a, a beautiful uh, unification between physics and math. In fact, new math math that uh, hadn't been seen before. Well, since you mentioned it, what exactly are trigonometric polynomials and trigonometric series? How do they come up in the classic problem of finding a series which sums to pi over 4? Well, the, uh, that's interesting. The, the, the problem of uh, the, the famous formula for pi over 4, 1 minus a third plus a fifth minus a seventh, all expressed in terms of just integers, had been discovered uh, long before Fourier by Leibniz um, in 1682, in fact. In fact, uh, that's a fairly interesting development in its own right. Fourier showed in early part of his book, uh, The Analytical Theory of Heat, which was published in uh, 1822, uh, how to do it very simply. A uh, high school fresh, uh, high school senior, uh, AP calculus, could easily understand it. And I uh, incorporated that in the beginning of the book. I think I used the phrase, uh, if you read that part of the book, it will sharpen your appreciation for Fourier's genius. Because it's when you get all through with it, you, you I, at least when I got all the way through it, I couldn't help but think, my God, how did anybody think of a thing like that? That is so damn clever, the way he did it. And as I said, a high school senior could understand it. I might just add that that, um, that formula for, for pi over 4 expressed strictly in terms of the integers 
is a, is a very famous formula. It's worthless for computation of pi because it converges so slowly. But it, it prompted a famous mathematician in the 19th century, Kronecker. He has wonderful quote that uh, God invented the integers. Everything else is the work of man, which I think is pretty appropriate there. You know, you mentioned uh, Lord Kelvin um, before we got off on trigonometric polynomials and trigonometric right. series. How did he realize that Fourier's work concerning heat also applied to long transatlantic electrical cables? Well, actually, uh, for, or excuse me, Thompson had read Fourier's book when he was still a teenager. Uh, Thompson was born in 1824, two years after uh, Fourier published his book. So it had been out for a few years uh, by the time Thompson was a teenager. So even as a very young fellow, he had read the book. Yeah, and I had there's a historical reference that I found that indicates that Thompson did it in two weeks. He read the entire book in two weeks, was completely enthralled with it and called it a mathematical poem. So from very early on, uh, William Thompson, later Lord Kelvin, was intimately familiar with Fourier's work and all of the different sorts of, of problems and, and uh, physical applications that he had applied. So he was, he was all primed and ready to go when the cable project came up. Now, I, I just realized uh, while I was talking here, I didn't really answer your question about trigonometric polynomials and trigonometric series. And I'll just say that, that they are infinite sums of trigonometric functions which are harmonically related, namely that, that um, the, the arguments of the trig functions are all related by integer multiples. And it was, it was Fourier's position that one could represent any periodic function as, as a Fourier series of trigonometric uh, functions. And uh, he ran into a lot of, of obstacles with that. Many of the famous uh, contemporary mathematicians of the day thought he was wrong. Uh, fortunately, Fourier persevered and uh, showed that they were wrong. He was right. Why was Lord Kelvin motivated to study the derivation of the heat equation in a sphere? I think Fourier originally started off with heat equation in a long bar. That's right. Well, that was the same time period, middle of the, uh, of the 19th century, that saw the appearance of uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. And Darwin uh, said that he needed, for his theory, vast periods of time revolution to take place. And by vast periods of time, we're talking hundreds of millions of years. Lord Kelvin uh, was a typical Victorian uh, of his time. He was a religious person. Uh, he, he, he believed in um, uh, a designer of the universe, that there was some sort of guiding intelligence behind the universe. But he, he wasn't totally convinced by the theory of evolution that, that, uh, that Darwin was putting forth. So by calculating the age of the Earth using Fourier's theory, he came up with a time that was far short of what Darwin needed. 
Kelvin came up with a period of about 98 million years for the age of the Earth, which was far too short for Darwin. So at the time, Kelvin thought that that was a refutation of, of Darwin's theory. Um, what was Kelvin's model for cooling Earth, and what problems does it encounter? Well, Kelvin, or actually um, William Thompson at the time, <laughs> um, I believe he was still, yeah, he wasn't elevated to the peerage until 1892. So he was still William Thompson, but he would be Kelvin. He took the Earth initially as a spherical, completely molten ball of matter at a uniform temperature of about 3,900 degrees centigrade. It's pretty hot, blazing ball in, in space. And let it cool down. He just imagined it cooling down until it formed a crust. Uh, and, he would, and that would be the crust that would support the formation of ocean beds, in, which is, would then allow formation of life forms to occur on Earth. Before you had the oceans, there wasn't any way anything was walking around on the surface of the Earth. Uh, and what he did is he let the Earth cool until the surface gradient, in other words, the, the rate of change of temperature uh, at the surface of the Earth would be what we see today, modern, time, modern value of the gradient. Uh, the problem he ran into is he didn't have really a good idea of what numbers to plug into his equations. What should he use for the thermal diffusivity of, of matter? Uh, he, he measured uh, at, at several places, uh, at various places around the Earth, but how do, you, how do you compare what the thermal properties of matter are in the Antarctic with what they are in Mississippi? I mean, there's just so much variability. Furthermore, uh, I don't really get into this in the book. Uh, I do in um, a different book I wrote. I, I'll mention that later. Uh, one of his students, John Perry, showed that if one just allowed the thermal properties of the Earth to be discontinuous, a, a different value near the surface as opposed to what it is in the interior of the Earth, that one could come up with vastly different numbers than Kelvin did, including billions of years, which is just exactly what Darwin needed. So uh, John Perry, who lived until 1920, by the way, wasn't an old fogey from the, from the Victorian times, um, always said that he wasn't trying to disprove uh, or prove that Kelvin was wrong. He was just trying to show that there were lots of different ways of analyzing the problem that gave enormously different answers. And um, from that point on, people took Kelvin's, excuse me, William Thompson's uh, analysis with a grain of salt. Um, who was Jan Ingenhaus, and what was his contribution to this problem? Yeah, Ingenhaus is kind of an interesting guy. I had never heard of him until I was writing the book. And in the course of uh, my research, I discovered this Dutchman. Uh, he was born in 1730. Uh, died in 1799, and he was a medical doctor by training, but he had great interest in science in general that extended well beyond medicine. And one of the things that he was interested in was in the thermal properties of wires. 
Now, I have to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure how the wires came into that, but he had an enormously clever way, uh, given the technology of his day, of being able to compare the thermal properties of, of a wire made of one material compared to a wire made of a different material. And what he did is really um, an inspiration, I think, to every person who teaches high school physics, uh, how to put together a, a beautiful experiment using nothing but the paper clips and the string and, and, the, and uh, any other junk you can find in a desk drawer to do a really marvelous experiment. What he did is he took a long wire and he coated it with beeswax that he knew melted at 63 degrees Fahrenheit. He stuck one end of the wire into boiling water, didn't even need a thermometer to measure the temperature, because, of course, at, you know, room, uh, at atmospheric pressure and room temperature and all that sort of thing, it boils at 100 degrees centigrade. And then he just measured how far down the length of the wire the beeswax stopped melting. So it would melt as long as the temperature of the wire was above 63 degrees. So he, he could take a ruler and measure the length of the uh, wire that had, uh, had the beeswax melted off of it and compare that to the same length of a different wire made of different material. And from that, using a little bit of mathematics, which I talk about in the book, he was able to compare the thermal properties of these two wires. He didn't even have to know what the wires were made of. Uh, and I, when I read that, uh, it really is secondary to Fourier's work, but when I read that, I thought, this is so darn ingenious that uh, it's got to be in the book. So I, I wrote up a little section of that and added the mathematics that, that I couldn't find uh, that he had done. And uh, his work, it, it all checked out. And the reader can take a look at that. You know, I'm noticing that the word ingenious and the word Ingenhaus begin with the same five letters. <laughs> well, it's appropriate. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> Most probably. Anyway, another person that you mentioned in your book was Daniel Bernoulli. Yeah, uh, Bernoulli, uh, he was born in 1700. He was born long before Fourier uh, came on the scene. Uh, the reason that he is important, the reason I mention him, uh, is because he is the first person that I could trace back uh, to the technique of separation of variables in solving partial differential equations. And that's the classic technique for solving the heat equation which is the method that I use in the book, as opposed, as I said before, to using the Laplace transform, which is what I use in the transients for electrical engineers book. And I wanted to show how, uh, this is a very clever method, and I wanted to show how uh, uh, this was known several hundred years ago to uh, Daniel Bernoulli, who was Swiss, by the way, he's a Swiss mathematician. Um, his father, I might just mention this, his father, John, is the, actually the inventor of Lohopital's rule, which is which named after Lohopital, but that's only because of the fact that Lohopital bought the, the rights to publish it in his book as long as he could get credit for it. But Daniel Bernoulli, or Daniel Bernoulli's father, John, was the actual inventor. Uh, and you know, that, was in 17, that was in 1753. I was just checking my notes to see when he did this. 
Okay, I remember I always tell, you know, I always tell my students when I'm teaching first semester calculus about L'Hopital's rule and say that uh, it just goes to show, you know, money can buy immortality in it to a certain extent. Um, yes, <laughs> you've got that in your, uh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. He, um, see, I was going to mention one other thing about that. Uh, L'Hopital's book, though, he wasn't, a, he was an honest guy. I mean, he didn't try to hide this, I don't think. And his book was the first textbook on the differential calculus. So he brought writing skills to the literature that other people didn't. So I, I wasn't prepared to trash him completely. <laughs> he you did know, do a useful thing. Uh, writing you, I, is extremely important. Um, I, was, I had another podcast previously that made me realize that there was a geometry text that uh, not by a noted geometer, but just by somebody who put it all together. And it wasn't Euclid who also put stuff all together, but the text was standard for more than a hundred years. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty amazing to me. Um, anyway, uh, getting back to Thompson or Kelvin, I'm never going to think of him as Thompson. I mean, I'm always going to think of him as Lord Kelvin. Um, did his results get him in trouble with religious authorities the way Darwin's did? No, I don't think they did. Uh, he was actually, I think, his work actually was used by some people to refute Darwin. Um, there's a wonderful book. I, if I can pitch somebody else's book for readers who are interested in following up on this, uh, it was published by the University of Chicago Press, Lord Kelvin and the Age of the Earth by uh, Joe Birchfield. Uh, and I, I cite that in my book. That was a reference that I used. And I was looking uh, through that just recently, and it mentioned that that um, Kelvin, I think he was William Thompson at the time, but I'm following your path. I'm going to call him Kelvin from now on, too. It's the way I think of him. Yeah, we all do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He was asked, you know, what he thought about the formation of life on Earth. Just where did that come from? If it, what did Was it Adam and Eve in the garden? Or was it uh, evolution that Darwin was pitching? And in fact, he had an interesting idea that he felt that, that life existed in the universe from the beginning of time, and that whatever life forms were on Earth were the result of... Uh, uh, impacts from asteroids or meteors, uh, that sort of thing, that, that just brought life from elsewhere in the universe to us. Um, Kelvin was not a big fan of miracles. Uh, he, he, he was a big fan of the rules of mathematics and the laws of physics. And he didn't like imposing miracles as explanations for what we see. So... I actually, I think one could probably write a whole book on that subject about Kelvin's attitude towards uh, religion, evolution, uh, the formation of life on Earth. And I, I think in my book, I, I did a pretty good job of steering clear of that. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think I have a line about, I mentioned briefly that this got, um, this started a big debate among religious authorities. Uh, Kelvin's Age of the Earth analysis and that sort of thing. But I wasn't going to go there. Uh, I was just going to talk about strictly the physics and the mathematics. 
I chickened out. When, yeah, no, I think, that to- was, I, I think that was uh, I think that was wise, not because it would get you in trouble with authorities today, but some speculation, I think, um, is, is perfectly reasonable in books of these types and books of this type. But I think what you want to do is you want to stay within speculation that is within the confines of mathematics, physics and other sciences, just because that's yeah. the type of book that it is. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I that's what I was trying to do. Um, anyway, in the middle of the 19th century, a new uh, literary form star- arose, namely science fiction, in which novels of the mid 19th century actually presaged science fiction as a literary form and what technological product projects lay at their heart. Well, uh, I mentioned in my book uh, a, a couple of them, actually three of them. Around the World in 80 Days a by Jules Verne. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Everybody, even today, 80 Days sounds sort of extreme for getting around the world. It's still an exciting read, I think, for a young person. Uh, to the Earth and the Moon, from the Earth, or to the Earth. To the Moon from the Earth. Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to find my copy of the book. It's up on my bookshelf. Oh, I was I just going to- for the prepositions. To the Earth, to the Moon, I think is the, is the title. Okay. I'm always thinking of from in there, but uh, of course, that's also Jules Verne, which is blasting, you know, a man and uh, a group of men in a, in a cannon shell to the, to the moon out of a cannon. And today, of course, we do that with uh, rockets. And by the way, around the Earth uh, in 80 days, we do that today with airplanes, uh, much faster, too. Uh, one I didn't mention in the book was. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was also by Verne. And, of course, submarines would, would do that. Uh, and then H.G. Wells with the time machine. Now, that's, that's one gadget that we still are waiting for. We don't have that. But these were all uh, wonderful novels that excited the Victorian imagination. And, and the reason that I got into that was that they all... It seemed to me they all started the same way. You you had a group of of uh, upper class men, men of means, sitting around talking about an outrageous project, something that most people would dismiss as as a fantasy, going around the earth in eighty days, going to the moon, traveling you know under the sea for tens of thousands of miles, a time machine to go through time. And I was thinking, that's exactly what happened with the transatlantic cable. The, the original formation of the cable uh, project was a group of men sitting in a New York office talking about laying this monstrous cable across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, you know, in water that was three miles deep uh, to communicate. And most people would have thought that was insanity at the time, uh, just like a Jules Verne novel. And, and just like in a Jules Verne novel, they did it. They were actually able to do it. Why was the development of the transatlantic cable felt to be such a revolutionary technological feat? Well, actually, uh, before the cable went in, you think about how people communicated across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the only means available was to physically transport uh, either a person or a written document on a ship, in a sea bag, 
which might sink at sea and never make it across the ocean. Uh, and if it did make it across the ocean, either a person or the sea bag, it was many days before a message could go either, either way. With the cable, uh, it was almost instantaneous and not quite the instantaneous nature we think of today, where, for example, we're talking right now across the whole country in real time. It, it only took uh, the cable maybe a matter of minutes or an hour or so, depending on the length of the message, um, to send a signal, a telegraph signal through the cable, uh, 1,700, 2,000 miles or so, and uh, with no danger at all. And that was just mind-boggling to people who had grown used to the fact that they wouldn't, that any news they heard from London in America was four, five, six weeks old, and vice versa. Anything that happened in the United in, in America was already pretty old by the time it got back to England. Yeah, I can see that because I, you know, again from the uh, standpoint of the 21st century, we think of electricity as being able or electronics being able to convey messages virtually instantaneously, but radio hadn't radio hadn't come on the scene yet, and so even though they did have, you know, they did have uh, telegraphy. So there was such, you know, there was such an idea, but the transatlantic cable, I can see now, was definitely something a step beyond. In your book, That's right. In your book, you know, you give a nice summary of what you call electrical physics for mathematicians. There aren't a lot of mathematicians listening. Well, maybe there might be a few, but I'm hoping you can give such a summary for our listeners. Well, I included that section because uh, I, I know from my previous writing that I have a tendency, and I think some other uh, engineering writers have a tendency to fall into jargon and start, you know, talking like they're talking to their engineering students. And I was hoping that there would be mathematicians who would find this particular book interesting, if only for the history. So I thought I would throw a little bit, a little summary of uh, electrical engineering, the beginnings of electrical engineering into the book. And I did have a warning that if it's old hat, skip it. All the double E's would just skip over it. Uh, but for mathematicians who might want to take a look at it, there it is. And basically, it boils down to just two fundamental laws of physics. The conservation of electric charge, which I asked people to accept, uh, which is that electric charge, uh, if, you, if you follow electric charge along uh, multiple wires that all come together in a node at a single point, the charge going in is equal to the charge coming out. That's called Kirchhoff's current law. Moving charge is current. So Kirchhoff's law, current law just says current in equals current out. Uh, if you think of water and electricity as being analogous, which is what the Victorians did do, it's not a very good analogy. There's better, there are better ways of thinking of electricity. But it's good enough for this. You know, it's like thinking of water in pipes. Water in equals water out. It doesn't accumulate anywhere. The other law is conservation of energy, which, again, I ask people to accept. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that if it's violated, then we could build perpetual motion machines, and nobody has ever seen such a thing. And basically what it is is it just says that if you sum all of the energy it takes to move 
charge around a closed loop from starting at any point all the way around any closed loop back to where you started, that the net energy change must be zero. Because if it wasn't zero, then it must be either positive or negative. If it's positive, you could sell it uh, to the power company. You'd have a, you know, you could make money just moving charge around a closed loop. And nobody's ever seen that. If it was negative, well, then just go the other direction. Then it'll turn that negative energy change into a positive one. So the only one that works is a zero change. And that's called Kirchhoff's voltage law. The voltage drops around a closed loop is zero. And that's all you need to, uh, to understand how the cable works a little bit later on in the book. So that's pretty terse. I think I do a better job in the book than I just did here. But uh, no, I'll tell you, I thought that was pretty reasonable. Okay. Um, I was surprised to learn that there were two attempts to uh, lay the transatlantic cable. Why did the 1858 attempt fail? And was something learned from the failure that made the 1866 attempt succeed? I, th I think that historically it's pretty well agreed now that the 1858 cable would have worked uh, properly and indefinitely, but, but for a mechanical flaw. The general idea is, is that the cable, as you would imagine, is made from metallic strands of wire that are very carefully insulated by what, what's called uh, uh, gutta perch. It's a, it's a tree resin gum that, when it's made uh, submerged into cold water, forms a, a very hard, strong, insulating uh, body to protect the inner cable from the seawater. Sometime during the construction of the 1858 cable, <coughs> excuse me, uh, there must have been a flaw. And uh, water got in, seawater got in, and eroded the cable. There was an attempt to overcome that by using higher and higher voltage levels on the cable. The actual cables that work don't use that high a voltage. I think typically a few tens of volts were what were used. Uh, to overcome the, the, uh, the failure of the insulation, people started using very high voltages to just shove the message through the cable, so to speak, to the point where they actually ruptured the cable electrically, which really put, that was the death knell for the cable. When they made the 1866 cable, Manufacturing processes were very carefully monitored, and that cable lasted for decades. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that it lasted for decades, because I didn't know exactly when the transatlantic cable sort of fell out of favor, wasn't being used anymore, and got superseded by other ways to communicate. What are some of the developments that took place in communication subsequent to the transatlantic cable? Well, actually, cables um, were were quite popular and very useful, uh, and were were being laid, you know, well into the beginnings of the 20th century. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the book, at one point, uh, I talk about the, uh, the 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 story of the Zimmerman telegram uh, in World War One, when the English cut the German cables that were running through the English Channel, and uh, even later than that into the, uh, I think it was in the 70s, the 1970s, American, an American submarine 
hacked into the cable that the Soviets had laid, not as deeply as the Atlantic Ocean, but actually were able to hack into uh, cables that the Soviets were using to transmit from one side to another. So cables have been around for a long time since the transatlantic cable and are probably still in use in some place, even today. But what's really come into play now, of course, since the cable was the invention of electronics, vacuum tubes, radio, as you mentioned earlier, uh, satellite communications, and the development of electronic, uh, electrical, mathematical coding theories to prevent hacking or to at least combat hacking. Uh, you might be able to bust into a, into, into a radio transmission, but then you have to get through the encipherment, which is an interesting problem in its own right. Uh, probably the big example of that was in World War II with the breaking of the German Enigma codes uh, by the British. Um, cables would have prevented that, but they were doing radio transmissions then. Um, you mentioned in your book that Kelvin anticipated the electronic computer. Did he, what, did he anticipate it mechanically, or did he anticipate it through the idea of software and programming like... Uh, uh, like Ada Lovelace did, or what? Yeah, no, it was mechanical. In fact, uh, working models were actually made. It was a title analyzer that he was involved with, which uh, actually solved uh, the, it's, it's an analog computer, basically, but solved the uh, equations of the motion of the tides, and which involved implementing Fourier series in the form of pulleys and cables and gears and racks and pinions and all sorts of things. And they could sum in a Fourier series, it's an infinite sum, but of course, from a practical point of view, it's always a finite sum if you're doing a computation. I believe that they had a working model that would be up uh, 15, 20 terms of a Fourier series. And he um, made the claim that with more money, they could build a title analyzer that would sum a thousand terms of a Fourier series. Eventually, the mechanical problems would put a limit on how much you could do. The cables would stretch, the gears would wear, the teeth in the cables would snap off, that sort of thing. But I, I loved uh, one quote that I found from uh, Thompson, Lord Kelvin, that uh, building these devices, these mechanical devices, would replace all the human drudgery that people had to go through doing it by hand. And he called it replacing uh, brains with brass, which I, <laughs> I thought was pretty good. And in fact, um, in, in modern terms, we could even go a step beyond that. And I use this in one of my other books, modern solid state computers that were where we make things out of silicon. Uh, transistors, solid-state electronics. We, we're trading sand for smarts. You know, Silicon, of course, being that primary component of sand. Well, that was me doing a little play on, on Lord Kelvin. I think he said it better. His is funnier. Yeah, well, I'll have to tell you, it'd be a little different if it were Brass Valley rather than Silicon Valley, Tim. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> anyway, part of the epilogue to your book is material on differentiating an integral. What was Feynman's approach to this, and why is it such an important problem? 
Well, you know, Feynman uh, never claimed to have invented this method. He actually learned it from a calculus book that his high school physics teacher gave him. He was being a disruptive influence in class when he was in high school. And to calm him down, his, his instructor, who actually was a, a graduate student in physics himself at the time, uh, gave him this book uh, written by an MIT math professor to uh, give him something to do besides disrupting class. And one of the topics in that book was differentiating integrals. Mathematicians had known about this technique for a long time, long before Feynman was born. Uh, but he popularized it. Uh, and the reason it became uh, famous is Feynman's trick, which is really an inappropriate name, because as I said, Feynman didn't invent it, is because so many important problems or integrals that occur in mathematics and physics and engineering can be solved using this trick. And I, in the book, I show readers how to do one of them. I, if I can mention another book of mine, it's sure. coming. It's coming out uh, later this year. It's, it's in. I'm reading proofs of it now. Uh, Inside interesting integrals, uh, published by Springer. It's uh, the second edition of the first edition that came out in 2015. There's a whole chapter devoted to Feynman's trick. It's so important. Uh, and Feynman gives a whole history of how he became aware of it in his book about. Um, I think it was. Um, the one he wrote called um, What Do You Care What Other People Think? Uh, the one that became a bestseller. That was, it, apparently that title came from his, his late wife when she was dying of tuberculosis at uh, Los Alamos when Feynman was working on the atomic bomb project. He made a comment to his wife in the hospital that he was a little afraid to do something because other people might think poorly of him. And she told him, what do you care what other people think? And he, he loved that, and he saved that for the title of his book. So I thought that was quite appropriate. Oh, yeah. You know, mathematics, physics, and engineering are interrelated. Often developments in one area stimulate developments in another. Although we normally think that the mathematics comes first simply because it doesn't require equipment, only labor. Were there any mathematical developments that followed as a consequence of the success of the transatlantic cable? Yeah, I, I, I wish I had made more of a point of that in my book. I didn't start thinking about it uh, until just recently. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, this guy named Oliver Heaviside, uh, who became peripherally involved in the age of the Earth calculations of Lord Kelvin, the way, the way Oliver Heaviside solved that problem uh, and showed pretty much that John Perry... Kelvin's former student was right in that Kelvin, his analysis could be extended to give billions of years to the age of the Earth, uh, was the beginning of Laplace transform theory, operator theory. Uh, and that was how Heaviside figured out uh, how to make the cables, the transatlantic cable, better so that it would be able to transmit information without distortion. The original transatlantic cable was full with distortion, namely that the uh, different frequency components of the signal would travel through the cable at different speeds. So you might put a nice crisp signal in at the sending end, 
and it would all kind of dribble out at the receiving end because different frequency components took different times to get to the end. Heaviside, using operator theory, uh, it wasn't called Laplace transform theory, but it was pretty close to it, uh, showed how to get around that. And that all followed uh, Kelvin's work. Uh, came decades after Kelvin. Well, I think this has been, I think it's a fascinating book, and I've enjoyed this conversation considerably. Um, how can listeners get in touch with you? Well, they can always reach me uh, via my email. I try to answer all the messages I get if I have a decent answer. And uh, I can spell it out right now if that's the way it goes, Jim, or you put it up on the uh, blog. No, spell it out uh, because okay. I don't know whether they're going to look at stuff, but they're listening to this. So let's go with that. Okay. It's uh, it's my name, Paul.Nahin, N-A-H-I-N, at U-N-H dot E-D-U. UNH for University of New Hampshire, which is my home institution. And um, they, can get, they can get hold of me pretty quickly that way. Um, Paul, uh, I, I was going to mention that UNH was University of New Hampshire, but I'm glad you did. And okay. during, the, uh, during the last few minutes, you mentioned that you were working on uh, a book, but that next book sounds really a little technical for this type of show. But if you write another book like this, Please get in touch with me so that we can do a podcast on it. Okay, will do. Terrific. Take care.